Thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. We are excited to welcome authors Dr. Miriam Schwalm and Associate Editor Professor Albrecht Stroh, who will be discussing their recently published manuscript titled, Functional States Shape the Spatial Temporal Representation of Local and Cortex-Wide Neural Activity in Mouse Sensory Cortex, with Editor-in-Chief Professor Nino Ramirez. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie, and hi, Albrecht and Miriam, and uh, many thanks for participating today in our podcast series. And we'll discuss the nature of cortical states during wealthfulness and also sleep, but we will significantly deviate from this paper that you published in the Journal of Physiology and touch issues such as consciousness and cortical states in your degenerative diseases. But uh, before we begin, please let me introduce you to our listeners. Both Albrecht and, and Miriam are experts in brain-wide imaging, and Dr. Albrecht Stroh is an associate editor for the Journal of Neurophysiology and professor at the Department of Pathophysiology at the University Medical Center of Mainz in Germany, where he also serves as the head of the Mainz uh, Animal Im Imaging Center. Now, before becoming professor, he did a postdoc in the laboratory of Karl Dyserov at uh, Stanford and Arthur Cornard at the Technical University of Munich, where he studied the role of corticothalamic waves using calcium imaging techniques. Now, Dr. Miriam Schwarm was a graduate student in the laboratory of Dr. Stroh before moving to the US, where she currently is a postdoc in the laboratory of Alan uh, Jasanoff at MIT, where she uses multi-scale neural calcium-sensitive fMRI imaging. Now, in this study, Albrecht and Miriam are characterizing functional cortical states. And uh, for the listener, just let me introduce this topic in a more general way. Now, our cortex is continuously active, you know, whether we're asleep or awake, but the functional states of the cortex changes as we transition from wakefulness to sleep. And even within the wakefulness state, uh, you know, our cortical states are changing. And of course, during sleep, you have many different states that are important for different aspects of memory consolidation, for example. Now, in the present study, Albrecht and Miriam are characterizing the cortical states that occur during wakefulness and slow wave sleep. And we know that during the wake state, the cortex shows an activity that is also referred to as persistent activity, an activity which is characterized by rather local compartmentalized activity devoid of any network quiescence. By contrast, during slow wave sleep, the cortex transitions into a slow rhythmic activity which consists of the rhythmic alternation between up states and then down states. And this slow rhythmic activity is more synchronized and spreads across the entire cortex as a propagating wave, which is actually one of the topics that we'll discuss today. Now, in the present study, Albrecht and also Miriam, but also co-workers combined electrophysiological and calcium imaging approaches to characterize the spatial temporal dynamics of this cortical activity. Now, Albrecht, I want to start with a with a big question, long question probably, and, and I believe many general listeners are not aware of the richness of cortical activity. So why don't you give us an overview about the different types of activities that the cortex ex exhibits and how they're differentiated with regards to their frequency ranges, their spatial characteristics, states of synchrony, and also their functional significance. So Albrecht, big question, Thank you. big answer. Thank Thanks. you, Nino. It's a pleasure and honor to be part of it. Thank you for having us. So let's, let's maybe get started by looking into 
the role of ongoing activity, because I think that's often um, disregarded. So if you just look at, uh, at uh, recording of mesoscopic activity and you compare the relative um, impact of uh, evoked versus sensory uh, versus ongoing activity, excuse me, then you will see that the ongoing activity makes up the vast majority of activity, over 95%. So you have to imagine that it's like adding a wave on an already wavy sea of spontaneous activity if you induce a stimulus. So first of all, it's very important to assess both ongoing and stimulus evoked activity to get a real pattern and understanding of the richness of cortical activity. So then you can start to look at different regions. So how are different regions being co-activated? So for example, in the FMI community, you will be familiar with uh, concepts such as the default mode network. Um, and uh, so you can look at how are different regions connected and synchronously active. Then of course, more in the EEG field, you can look at different frequency components which are then attributed to states of vigilance. Um, for example, um, now I hope that we have a very high gamma activity, uh, which is uh, connected to a high level of alertness and of cognitive processing. And uh, we um, now in this study also focus more on very low activity, like um, slow waves, which are sub-delta, meaning occurring at a frequency of, of, of about 0.1 hertz, but which are also kind of connected to gamma activity. So basically, um, if you want to assign um, a label to this rich cortical activity, it is important that you do not only look into one specific dimension, like at regional specificity, um, that you try to get a holistic view. And um, of course, we did not succeed uh, in that, I would not state, but we at least try to kind of combine different measures in our study. Wonderful. And uh, Albert, thank you so much. And now maybe Miriam, could you tell us a little bit about uh, cortical activity, which we know can vary dramatically when we're awake, depending on the state of our uh, vigilance, whether we're resting, concentrated or active. And, and my question is really, how can we differentiate these activity states in the cortex? Thank you, Nino. I think that's a very good question to start off with, because um, if you think about it historically, like in the history of neuroscience, when people first started to record neural activity from the cortex or from the thalamus, um, this is exactly what they looked at, right? Because that was the easiest and maybe most straightforward way to observe different signals in their recordings by eye, basically, while they performed the recordings. For example, the classic experiments of Steriade and um, colleagues, they recorded from sleeping, anesthetized, or awake animals, and then they describe what they observe. And then the field of neurophysiology kind of exploded from there, and people looked at stimulus response relationships, locomotion, etc. But this was kind of the first description of these states you mentioned and how they differentiated. Um, so to your question, of course, you can describe the substates of wakefulness depending on their vigilance state or attention level. And that's for example, very easily observable in human EEG, what Alvish just mentioned. Um, but uh, if you would contrast awake and active states versus maybe um, 
uh, resting or sleeper anesthesia, which are extreme forms of resting, if you want, um, you can very easily distinguish the activation patterns associated with these states just by looking at neuronal recordings at the population level, as for example, photometry or LFP. And um, I mean, I would never say that this dichotomy holds in the same form in an awake versus sleeping brain, because underlying mechanisms and physiological functions are different. Even the evolutionary development of them is entirely different. But what we did in this paper was to create this artificial distinction of these states by modeling them with different types of anesthesia. Um, and in both cases, you would be able to tell while you record from any given region in the cortex, if the system is currently in a more active state, where you would see this continuous signal of very high frequency fluctuations, or in a more low energy state where you would be able to observe slow wave activity or burst suppression as others would call it, which is this more bimodal states of bursts or waves of neural activity. And then they're interrupted by longer or shorter silence periods. So for example, you can easily see by eye when you record um, while you deepen anesthesia level that this ongoing spontaneous signal that Albrecht talked about goes from a continuous rapid fluctuation to slower and slower waves of activity. So you would be able to even tell by, by single cell recordings that we don't have uh, in, in, in the study, but it's something which is very descriptive and very easily distinguishable if you just look at your recordings online. Wonderful. So basically you can have a gradual uh, transition and, and where, where basically you, you get slower and slower in the frequencies uh, depending on anesthesia. Yes. And we'll talk about anesthesia uh, later on, but maybe let's uh, now talk about uh, actually the methods uh, and the challenges to capture and interpret uh, these activities. Now, uh, Albrecht, uh, given that you're an expert in, in electrophysiology and calcium imaging, as well as fMRI, why don't you tell us more about the advantages, but also disadvantages of each of these approaches and techniques when trying to characterize cortical activity? So what are the main challenges and opportunities when to, uh, trying to combine these different techniques and approaches to interrogate the activity states of the cortex? So uh, maybe let me start by mentioning uh, that there is not uh, the best method in functional neuroimaging. So basically the gold standard still after all these years, still single cell electrophysiology because the action potentials ac actually represents the language of the brain if you wish. And this is actually the signal we are after. So all we are doing is that we record proxies of an action potential which are more closer or more, more distant to, these, to the standard. So for example, uh, in calcium imaging, we record um, the fluctuation of intercellular calcium, which is at least on the onset, pretty tightly correlated to an action potential, but which is of course convoluted and with the dynamic of the indicator itself, which has its own temporal dynamic. Um, calcium imaging is of course a very powerful method uh, because uh, particularly in preclinical research, because then you can identify the network of hundreds, thousands, and even if you look at the glass brain approaches, um, a million of neurons at the same time with single neuron resolution, but of course with a far inferior tempo resolution of maybe 30 Hertz compared to 5,000 Hertz um, in electrophysiological recordings. So you will not be able to record all trains of extra potentials. Uh, moving on, um, what about functional MRI? 
um, these methods relay on rely on the methods of um, or the of neurovascular coupling, which is still a theory, even though it's um, it gained more and more experimental evidence that an increase of neural activity leads to a change of both uh, blood flow and blood volume, and this then you can um, detect also with optical methods, um, but also with brain-wide magnetic resonance imaging. And uh, the advantage here is twofold. First of all, um, this is a non-invasive method, right? So you can, um, you can record from an unperturbed animal, if you wish. What is more, you have a theory, whole brain resolution, even though that's also not entirely true because there's also signal drop off and sometimes difficult to record from very deep regions. But what is more, of course, it's a very nice translational method. So basically, um, it's, and, and this is also what's important in our study that we believe that it's important what, how can we relate actually neuroimaging um, results obtained in animals um, and in humans. So what we actually believe that by the combination of methods, we might be getting out most of it. And, and how do you combine? So I, we would suggest that we move beyond correlation into causality. So we do not only record different modalities at the same time, for example, fiber photometry and fMRI, we need to be smart in terms of extracting, for example, the very component from which we know it's of neurophysiological origin from the brain-wide fMRI um, method. So we build our regressors, right? So there are more and more ways um, to kind of interconnect these modalities. There's also fast fMRI, for example, this is already a long story, but I think that's really the future to make the best out of each modality and, and trying to intertwine them as good as, as, as possible. Wonderful. So, so I think, Eric, one of the problems you have with fMRI combining it with electrophysiology is that uh, fMRI is based on magnets. So, so it, it, it's not compatible with metal, correct? And then how did you solve that, that combination? Um, so EEG fMRI is actually yeah. um, a flourishing field in, in neuroimaging. And um, okay. there are ways to kind of get rid of the so-called gradient artifact, but of course it's not ideal. It's not mm -hmm. an ideal method combination, but it's the only one we have currently in the human neuroimaging field. And the animal field, um, indeed combining optical recordings and magnetic recordings might be advantageous because these signals do not interfere with each other. Ah, okay, perfect. Now, Miriam, you used here a mouse approach, you know, uh, which gives you a lot of opportunities using GCAMP, et cetera, uh, which you cannot do in humans. So maybe can you tell the listener, you know, what was it, the unique advantage of using a mouse cortex to, to address the question that you addressed here? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, of course, we are all always in favor of avoiding invasive animal experiments whenever we can, right? But unfortunately, for many, particularly the basic questions, it is not really possible to do that in human brains and look only at fMRI or what Elvis just mentioned, EEG signals, which would be even closer to what we did in this study. Um, and this is because with fMRI, we do not have the resolution 
uh, need their spatial temporal to look at the signals um, that we that we are having at hand here. So, for, for example, in this work, um, uh, the local or wide field recordings com to compare these different scales. These experiments are still necessary, right? So, if we compare what we were looking at in terms of uh, structural level or spatial resolution with fMRI. So you have to consider that one voxel, which is usually one cubic millimeter in size, would mean looking at around 100,000 neurons or more at the same time. So although we also do not have single cell resolution in the recordings we present in the study, um, that would be still a very different scale that we are looking at here. So for our work, we wanted to know what is happening in the entire cortex in comparison to what happens in a single area. So like this, we can draw way more precise conclusions in terms of where a signal comes from and where does it propagate to. So in human fMRI or EEG with the reduced spatial resolution, it gets very fast, very diffuse because here we were looking at signals which have response delays of a few milliseconds, right? And that wouldn't be possible to resolve with classical hemodynamic fMRI at least. Um, with EG, we have better temporal resolution, but we would not able to tell necessarily where a signal comes from and where it goes, right? So, but Alvish just published a, a paper with one of his uh, grad students um, where they analyzed human EG and fMRI data of sleeping humans in the same way, at least for the slow wave uh, state. And they could also show that you see this propagation. So it holds true for the human brain in a way, but if we really want to probe um, these precise signal propagations, there's unfortunately no way around uh, invasive animal experiments at the moment, right? Wonderful. Uh, thanks, Miriam. Now let's come back to the to the topic of your, your paper. So, so how does anesthesia or how do sedatives alter the cortical states? And, uh, and as you show, different anesthetics uh, induce different cortical states. Perhaps could you tell us more about this and how different is the anesthetic brain compared to the uh, sleeping brain, for example? And also, you use one of the anesthetics, which is meditomidine, which is uh, generating a different state of uh, brain activity uh, than other anesthetics. So could you, Albrecht, maybe give us a little bit of an overview of the different anesthetics, how they affect cortical states, and, and how are they differentiating uh, with each other? So... And, you know, this is maybe the most difficult question of all the questions that you, you may ask in this, in this podcast, because, um, and we get this asked by, um, I mean, students and, and colleagues attending our talks and reviewers alike. So it boils down to the point whether we look at anesthesia states or brain states. So certainly, if you, for example, look, uh, look at isoforane anesthesia, what isoforane anesthesia or deeper isoforane anesthesia is, is doing is that it's actually an uncoupling, uncoupling um, agent. So it leads to a very reliable induction of the bimodal slow wave state. And if um, an animal, also in human, is in this bimodal state, you can be absolutely certain that this organism is, uh, this brain is unconscious, right? Um, so whether this bimodal state is then also identical um, to the bimodal state which you observe, for example, in N2 and N3 sleep, um, uh, this I would certainly uh, not argue for, certainly not. Um, but I would still argue um, that uh, by looking at the brain state and not the anesthesia state, we learn more about the current functional state of the animal. 
Um, historically, there have been many, many studies, for example, describing how is the brain at 1.5% isoflurane, for example, or 1.8% isoflurane. And, and of course, uh, these are meaningful studies, but at the same time, uh, the brain is highly dynamic and, and it can, its response to anesthetics can vary drastically, even within a recording session, for example, what we observe is that even though we have the same type and dosing of anesthesia, the brain state can fluctuate, right? So it is of vital importance to look at the function organization um, of the brain. Um, so here in the study, what we use is actually um, anesthetics uh, like isoflurane and sedatives like, for example, alpha receptor modulators like nitumidine um, to kind of achieve um, a distinct brain state. Um, on the distinction between anesthesia and sedation, I, I would say that a sedative like menitumidine may or may not induce, induce unconsciousness. Yeah, that's maybe the, one of the main uh, points of it. And uh, in the sedative, we have, again, as Miriam pointed out, if you just look at the electrophysiological recordings, it, it looks very similar to the awake state to the awake condition, let me put it like that. Yeah, it's not the same, but it looks similar. And maybe we can use this also to look at, at distinct functional organization of, of uh, functional cortical networks. In our study, for example, we, have, we conducted also awake recordings. And again, I have to be very careful. We found at least phenomenologically that if you look at latency, if you look at the shape of sensory responses, they're very similar within the persistent activity state in the awake or uh, lightly sedated condition. So it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to maybe to sum it up. Um, of course, it's vitally important to state and, and to be very careful which kind of aesthetic regimen um, you, you use. Um, but again, uh, these kind of, these very two distinct brain states, which we looked at a slow wave state and persistent uh, state, on the other hand, um, they are induced by these different states, and the, but they can also occur naturally, and these phenomenologically, um, they might have a lot in common. Wonderful, Ari. Yeah, so it basically, uh, uh, you emphasize this dynamic uh, nature of these states and basically how anesthetics can change the state, but really uh, make preserve some characteristics, but others like connectivity between different areas can be disturbed and and, and thereby you can basically learn how the cortex activates uh, different functional states. So wonderful. Exactly. Now, maybe mm -hmm. maybe right. just uh, adding one more point, for example, there are aspects, for example, like sleep spindles or K-complexes, which we do not find in the isoforane anesthetics, right? So this is uh, way more richer if you look at N2 sleep stage and, and the physiological role may also be different in these different, um, and in these different types of how to induce a slow wave state. Interesting. So basically you use really the anesthetics as a tool uh, to better understand, you know, the dissociation of these states and, and, and the transition of the states. And, and I think that's the main topic. Another main topic, and, and maybe that's a question for Miriam of, of your paper is uh, how does the cortex process sensory information in the different states of sleep and wakefulness? Yeah, so this was exactly uh, the question how this paper started, right? This was exactly what we were looking at at the beginning, what we were interested in. And it was also the first data set that I recorded. So 
again, so I would not say anything about sleep, right? I don't know, and we didn't look at sleeping animals. So I could imagine what Albrecht also just said is to be similar uh, to anesthesia conditions if you would look at certain response properties, right? I'm not saying mechanistically, but um, in our studies that we modeled, um, we observed this very striking difference between these long delay stereotypical wave-like responses upon sensory stimulation and deep anesthesia. And that contrasted to these short delay responses, which would respond in the same way to every pulse of a stimulus train of certain frequencies until, until they will go into adaptation. And that this happens locally only in the area of the sensory modality that we stimulated. So local responses in visual cortex upon visual stimulation, local responses in so much sensory cortex upon FOPOS stimulation, which did not propagate in this wave-like manner, right? The wave in comparisons do propagate over the cortex, even to the contralateral side, and they just start in their respective sensory area, and then they travel across the cortex depending on their anatomical connections and on which neighboring cells are currently in an excitable state, etc. Um, so I think um, in this state, there's not necessarily sensory processing going on, right? Um, while in the local state, let's call it like that for a second, the information is normally encoded, although it is a sedative state, right? But we know that this is still possible to encode sensory stimulation. Um, interestingly, um, in a slow wave, sometimes uh, you observe is what we call primary responses um, in, in uh, the persistent state. The slow waves can also have them at the beginning. So they start with this primary response and we see um, the same type of response in the more active state, but in a slow wave, um, it then becomes a wave, right? So that doesn't always happen. And I think it would be very interesting uh, to look into this further. When does it happen? Is that a property uh, of, is, is it different from the primary response in the uh, in the persistent state? Or is it just the first uh, neural response that always happens and then it goes into a different uh, type of activity because the system is in a different state at the moment? And why did we look at this also? I mean, is it, we will come back to this and take home message, of course, but um, because even um, for the uh, anesthetic states, what we were thinking is that is important for many experiments that people still do. For example, what I do now, rodent fMRI, right, is done under uh, anesthesia most of the time, even um, sometimes with intubated, uh, artificially ventilated animals, where we don't know if that changes the brain state, and very likely it does. And uh, people observe all types of variability in their stimulus responses, and that could eventually be because they switch between different states back and forth, right? And their stimulus responses are different because the underlying uh, ongoing signal is different. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so this whole concept of, of propagating wave is, I think, uh, really interesting because you need cortex-wide recordings to, to understand the, the impact. And, and I think that has been not possible because of limitations of techniques, et cetera. I remember that, uh, you know, my, my uh, former chairman at, you know, Chicago, uh, Phil Yulinski looked at this in turtles and, and it was fascinating how basically the cortex was, was constantly generating these waves all over the brain. And, and, and that was back in the late nineties. And, and, and I think it now we're starting to understand this, uh, thanks to your papers really. Uh, now, uh, Albrecht, what is the role of actually the refractive period? Yeah, so the refractive period is critical for the propagation ability. 
So I would define, even if I'm now on a slippery slope, that these slow waves are a little bit like a population action potential, right? And um, we do not have the inactivation of a sodium channel, which I always ask my students how the refractory period of an X potential comes about. <laughs> um, but here also, it is a need to separate incidents of slow waves, because at least in sleep, these slow waves are tasked for kind of like a window of opportunity to kind of integrate um, the activity state of different brain regions, because on these slow waves, they are riding gamma waves, gamma oscillations, and then there's the information processing going on. So it's critical that these windows of opportunity are not, uh, do not experience tetanization, right? They need to be spatially separated. And so therefore there needs to be a refractory period also that once a wave starts, which is like uh, throwing a, a, a stone in a, in a silent uh, lake, it can actually then propagate in this ring-like structures, right? And this requires a refractory period. That's interesting. Now, uh, maybe Miriam, can you elaborate on this whole concept of, of traveling waves? You know, like, uh, uh, is this like, is this a function in memory consolidation, different areas of the brain? Or do we have any idea what, what, what the meaning is, the functional consequences of this is? Why that happens? Yeah, I mean, I think there are many uh, people have publish a lot of work about the uh, attractor dynamics, for example, how these propagations actually happen. And I mean, from, from the mechanism, I think we, I mean, we know that the waves, they start in layer five, right? And then um, they would move up to different layers. And then from there on, I think it is a probabilistic type of propagation in the sense of that the system is in a state where certain cells can either be in a down state or in an excitable state. And depending on which neighboring cells are right now in an excitable state, they will pick the signal up and then it will propagate in the whatever direction it can follow, but that is not entirely random because there are anatomical connections which would determine this. And also we know that most of the waves when they are spontaneous in sleep and in anesthesia and in humans and in rodents is all the same. They always tend to travel in anterior posterior direction. So if you would stimulate in the visual cortex and you would observe the wave traveling to somatosensory cortex, for example, because at some point it will end up there, this will take longer than if you would do that vice versa, because for whatever reason, it is more physiological for the, uh, for the network to we have this propagation going in an anterior posterior direction. Why that is, we're not entirely sure, right? So um, the reason why they propagate, I think Albrecht touched on this already um, during sleep, might be um, information processing in the sense of memory consolidation has to uh, or needs a way to um, that information can travel across the brain from the hippocampus to uh, from the cortex to the hippocampus, etc. I mean, but uh, we we don't really know what is the exact function of the propagation. I would say we we don't know that. No. Well, still a lot to do, correct? Very, <laughs> that's perfect. Now, uh, well, when we're asleep, you know, we're not conscious of our surroundings, but we actually process sensory information even if we're not aware. 
So Albrecht, what have you learned in your studies about the spatial temporal processing of sensory information during slow wave sleep when we're really uh, not conscious? What's, yeah, what's the role, for example? So in terms of the role of sensory stimulation, uh, let me maybe put it in, in a non-conscious conditioning um, condition. I would say in persistent state, and this an ongoing study where we do um, also um, fear extinction in the scanner in the persistent state, and we find that we can also do fear extinction. So I think in persistent state, um, sensory stimulation plays not, not the identical, but maybe similar role than in the wake state. In slow wave state, things are different. In the slow wave state is not designed for sensory processing. What happens, for example, if the, for example, if you do visual stimulation in sensory, uh, in slow wave state, what happens that a small local population in primary visual cortex is being stimulated and generates the primary response, which Miriam alluded to. And this primary response is present and persistent in slow wave state. But due to the um, mechanism of the network, for example, this small stimulation might be sufficient to generate an avalanche transitioning actually the, all of the other neurons from down to upstate and then inducing a traveling wave um, of activity. And, and um, uh, this, is, um, this is, for example, also important if you think um, of these low waves as a marker for cortical excitability, yeah? So uh, maybe I can um, allude to that very briefly because we know that in early, um, early stages of neurodegenerative disorders, um, that there are changes in local excitability, right? Um, so basically if then, um, and this will actually interfere with the propagation of these um, slow waves, like uh, Miriam alluded to um, earlier, right? So um, if, if the sea is already wavy, you will not be able to see kind of this propagating ring, right? Um, so therefore, um, this is a, a, maybe an important aspect. We did not do any experiments on that, but it's clear that this might hold potential in um, kind of maybe looking at having a sensitive marker on changes in excitability um, in the cortex. Wonderful. So this basically has very important clinical implications, correct? That you can have these local oscillations that are really actually disrupting propagation of, of, of those waves that occur early on in your degenerative diseases. So you think that this could be used to diagnose, for example, early on Parkinson or Alzheimer diseases, and, and that it's a general concept in, in brain activity? So this is a, now what I say is very speculative, but it's also known that um, the mutation carriers, they're not even patients yet, they report also sleep disturbances. So it might also well, well be that this disruption of slow wave propagation, which could occur, is also then interfering or disturbing memory consolidation in, in, in sleep. Again, uh, this is a long stretch, but it's, it's, um, it, it might be consistent with what we uh, know now. So it's both a marker and also maybe part of the pathophysiology of these um, degenerative disorders. There is more than just um, alpha uh, synuclein or um, A-beta uh, depositions, <laughs> uh, but there's also the network. Wonderful, Albrecht. Yeah. Why don't you uh, 
go on with the speculation. And, and, and uh, my question now, what it means to be conscious. Are there certain characteristics that you believe are functional markers for consciousness? Uh, can you talk about connectivity and does the degree of connectivity provide insights into the state of consciousness that you have? Um, so in terms of the degree of consciousness, I mean, what is required for, for conscious awareness is specifically, I think it's a regional specific concert of activation. So, um, and it is a constant flow of activation. So once uh, we see kind of periods of quiescence, for example, then uh, this is not attributable to a conscious processing. So there seems to be the need of a continuous and regional specific, and uh, there's also this cortical songs, the very specific, very complex pattern of, uh, of activation of often very distant notes, right? This is also important. And, and so I'm just looking at this uh, phenomenologically from the imaging viewpoint, looking at the activation of these networks, but there we seem to uh, find a kind of uh, a necessary correlate of consciousness. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, of course, we can talk forever now on consciousness and and, and how we lose it in anesthesia. And and uh, and I think, uh, you know, anesthesia and studying like what you have done, cortex-wide activity, I think will actually provide important answers to understand, you know, consciousness. But uh, that's for another time. So my question to you now, both Albrecht and Miriam, uh, what are the important take-home messages that you want the listener to remember uh, from our conversation and also your paper? Uh, who wants to go first? I can go first. <laughs> Thanks, Miriam. So um, I think I, I mentioned this already. Um, so for practical uh, experimental uh, uh, insights, in a sense, uh, I think the underlying cortical state is often ignored, right? I mean, even in now uh, awake recordings, uh, locomotion, uh, mouse running on a treadmill, etc. Um, it can happen that you switch between a more resting uh, type of state where you have at least some large scale fluctuations going on. I'm not saying there's a slow wave activity, but it's very close to that. And um, when the mouse is running or is more active, in a sense, is more attentive, then you have this uh, higher fluctuations. And um, that's something that is easily, as we showed, I mean, you, you can easily observe that in these types of experiments. And you have to take it into account if you want to analyze your sensory responses. And especially in experiments where you not necessarily see it because you have the red in fMRI or you have your mouse in fMRI scanner, you would need to know at least by guessing, let's say breathing rate or types of anesthesia that you use, because we can guess from the anesthesia what state you are likely in, right? We know from which isofluorine concentration more or less you would fall into a slow wave state. We know that uh, dexmedetomidine is rather uh, a persistent state in inducing or uh, other uh, uh, classically used uh, anesthetics like urethane, for example, will switch between these two states con uh, constantly. So um, I think it's very important to take this into account when you do your experiment and when you analyze um, uh, sensory responses because you might have a high variability there which is mainly explained by the underlying cortical state which we think is a variable that you have to 
uh, you have to collect it and you have to take it into account when you when you want to do these experiments. I think that's the main take home message in the practical sense, at least. Miriam, that is really fascinating. You're right. Like we we do experiments and we think, you know, the animal is awake, but it, it, there are different states of wakefulness. The cortex can change, which then, of course, affects your behavior, etc. So, yeah, the dynamic nature of 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 the cortex is really fascinating, and I think. That was one of the things that I got out of your your study, which uh, uh, was very fascinating. Now, Albrecht, why don't you go and, and tell us a little bit about uh, your, your take-home message? Yeah, I mean, I, I can only fully support and, and, and thank Miriam for this very clear take-home messages. I might add, look at spontaneous activity, right? There's no noise in brain activity. No neuron is just spiking because it's spiking. So there's no noise. There can be noise in your measurement but not in uh, the neural activity. So it has something uh, to say, even though we do not know what it is, but it is um, important uh, to, to look into this. And, and um, again, really, you don't have to do trimodal recordings to assess the brain state, right? I mean, you can just carefully look at your recordings and at least then get a probability of in which brain state you are. And uh, then maybe, the dream, of course, would be then to go into closed loop experiments. But even then, you need to, to know, are you now kind of stimulating the animal in a downstate and upstate on a persistent state, right? So this is actually, um, I think, very, very important. And, and this is something that we urgently need, um, again, from a clinical perspective, if we want to move forward to a, um, early and, and highly predictive uh, markers of early, early network um, early network changes. Wonderful. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I find this idea, the concept that there is really no noise, but but really not uh, uh, not enough understanding of what all these activities mean. And uh, But there can, can be maybe noise if you have neurodegenerative diseases where suddenly, you know, some of these networks don't uh, integrate in the rest of the networks and then you get disruption of the propagations and processing. So, it's a very, very fascinating uh, topic. And I think, you know, like also in the future, uh, you know, with the neuropixel recordings where you can record from thousands of neurons at the same time, it will be really fascinating to better understand the population activity in different areas of the brain and how they connect. So fascinating area and uh, of research. And I really look forward to your next papers. And uh, and I thank you so much for the discussions. And uh, and I hope also to the listener, you, you are in awe what your brain is doing all the time while you're listening to this podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.